Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to have returning guests, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, and they are going to be talking today about getting on code, leaders walking their talk. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're delighted to be here. As we jump into the conversation, give us the 30-second headline of who you are and why you are the absolute experts in this topic, other than you're fabulous. Well, first off, you're putting quite a bit on it there, Maureen. Uh, experts. You know, Keith and I, we've been in corporate America sitting at some of the most powerful seats in organizations. And for me, I'm a, an HR executive. I've worked in several different environments from med tech to aerospace. And the topic of us kind of speaking about being on code is something that we're tested with, you know, so this is a very timely topic for us. Exactly. And like Ricky, I've had the opportunity to work at the top levels of many organizations in uh, CFO and COO roles. Being able to share that knowledge back was really important to us and, and one of the reasons we started doing this work. Okay, so let's jump in. Why do we care about being on code and why does this matter for leaders? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, probably just defining being on code, you define some of it to begin with, but really for us, it's basically walking the talk, giving back, bringing others along, and really fighting for change when you see inequities. And that's for us is kind of the simple definition of what getting on code is all about. And that applies regardless of where you are in the organization. There are times in all of our careers where you're in a meeting and decisions are going to be made and you have the opportunity to professionally and appropriately challenge the status quo. When you don't do that, when you just let something happen and you let a marginalized group become further impact or when an organization says, hey, we can't find talent. That's the reason why we don't have diversity in our senior ranks. It's a bit of a cop out. So as a leader, getting on code is, again, putting your credibility on the line, you know, so to speak, and being able to speak up or step out when you have the opportunity to do that. That's really kind of like that bringing others up and challenging the status quo that we're talking about. That's really the essence of getting on code. And not drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, when, once you get to positions of power, it's understanding that you have a responsibility. You got to motivate, inspire, be a role model, coach folks, bring others along, all of those things that you have to do as a leader and doing the right thing. Ricky and I talked about this tragedy in Memphis as an example. Right. Those cops, they were in positions of power and authority. People had fought and put blood, sweat, and tears on the line to help them open the doors to get those positions. And then they go and do what they did to Tyree Nichols. That's not being on code. Being on code would be training the next level of police officers coming through the system, being present in your neighborhood, all those kinds of things is really um, what it's about. Yep. Yep. Sometimes there's this fork in the road where you say, you know what, I don't really want to damage my position at the table or my social standing at the organization. So I'm just going to let them take care of this themselves and I'll just be behind the scenes. So what we're saying is it's time now for people to stand up and do the right thing at all times versus just when people are looking or when you believe it might be performative in nature. We're actually urging people to take, take action now. Earlier in my career, I had a boss, female boss, advocating for women, and she was, I would say, militant. And she got to the point where if somebody said something before they did it, they would say, and I know I'm going to get a nasty email from her because I didn't do the thing she wanted. 
She was on code, but not as impactful. Mm -hmm. And so I want to raise the question that sometimes subtlety gets a bigger impact than the hammer. That's actually a really good point, because if you're in an environment where you're the only person trying to be accountable, like there are no accountability partners, every time you bring up a challenging point, you're going to stand out or stick out like the oddball. So I would say that's when it becomes not popular. You know how it is when class is about to be over and the teacher's getting ready to send the class away and it's like, does anybody have any more questions? And there's always that one person keeping us from leaving 10 minutes early. That's how it is when you're trying to stand up and do the right thing sometimes, right? Because if you have other leaders who aren't aligned, who really don't want to be held accountable for some of those decisions, that person's always going to be the eyeball. So what happens is to make it easier is if other people are in alignment, then we want to talk about the same things that your old boss is challenging the group with. We want to be able to speak to that. And we're not worried about getting our hands slapped or making other people feel uncomfortable because we're all aligned towards the right mission. You're doing things for the right reason. One of the things I've done with clients is have them in advance of a session, make sure when I make this point, you amplify it. So somebody's not standing out there on an island in their underwear, hoping that, you know, they don't get buried with a wave. Right. Yes. right. But we're all kind of ensuring that we are speaking with common voice. Mm -hmm. Most of our companies say we have these values. And yet in closed rooms, it seems like we lose focus on them. There's no real alignment oftentimes. So the amplification seems like a really useful tactic. But if I can grab someone who is aligned that I know has the courage to speak and let them know when I say this, I need you to jump in yep. has been one thing that I've found to be useful. It's a great technique because then that shows some solidarity and it's not just you. Again, like you were saying, just kind of out there on the island or getting ready to get hit by the wave. Yeah, <laughs> if you will. And it creates the psychological safety. And again, we ask people to be your authentic self. But in reality, most organizations really don't want you to be your authentic self. They want you to be authentic as long as it is aligned with my values or as long as it serves my purpose. When we're asking people to do more, when we're asking people to behave differently, when we're asking you to stand up for a cause or do the right thing, that can be uncomfortable, especially if you're not accustomed to doing the right thing or if you're just accustomed to Again, doing performative acts when you're in front of the town hall meetings and you're telling employees, you know, one thing, but behind the scenes, you're doing something different. Employees are smart. They start to figure out, to your point, Keith, that there is some misalignment, that people aren't quite on the same page. And again, when you start thinking about employee opinion surveys, when you think about top 100 companies to work for, there is some commonality behind the best in class organizations who are on those lists and are really trying to do the right things versus the ones who aspire to be, but really don't want to change their behaviors. Both of you have been C-level executives. I assume that you've had people on your teams who are technically competent with whatever the skill is. They're a great financial analyst. They're a great HR analyst. And yet their definition of the right thing and yours could be significantly different. You really don't want them to be authentically misaligned with the company. How do you manage those folks if they are valuable to ensure that they uphold the company values and get to continue to have a job? But that means you don't get to authentically go yelling at people because that's not how we behave around here. 
that kind of like triggered me because I had an employee that you're exactly describing, hugely technically competent. In fact, should have been sitting in my seat, but because they did not have the people skills and know how to like really interact with people and very snippy and yelling and all of those things, that was the part that was holding them back. And so I would make sure in our one-on-one conversations that we talked about that, you know, and I'd be very honest. It's like, here's our values. These are the things that we need to have as a company and how we expect you to behave as a person working for this company. You have all the technical capability. The thing that's stopping you from moving forward now is really on you. It's really how you're behaving. We would have those one-on-one conversations. If I didn't see change, then that went into a performance conversation. And then unfortunately in this situation, I had to perform them out the door because it would never click in. Because it didn't click in, There's only so many times I can tolerate that behavior and still maintain credibility with your organization and saying that I'm mission aligned and on code and I'm trying to do the right things for the company. Yeah. And I think to that point, Keith, when we work together, you know, and also as I coach other executive leaders, I think when you think about the technical skills, that's like the what, like what you do. And I think in the historical past, we've put so much emphasis on the what and not enough on the how. Now, making sure that how you deal with that is giving just as much credit, putting just as much emphasis on the how. So you have the what goals, so to speak, and the how goals. So again, if you accomplish the goals and you make revenue for the organization, that's great. But if you're creating carnage along Mm -hmm. the way, people don't want to work for you. Your overall leadership engagement scores, or you have high turnover and super low, we have to hold you accountable to that too. And again, I think that's the part where the getting on code piece really highlights itself is we have to be able to put the other stuff, grade that just as high as hit the numbers or selling the product. That's where the misalignment comes in, because when you see people getting promoted for just the what. Yeah. And getting getting, uh, what promoted and us rewarding the the worst part Mm -hmm. of the behaviors. Yes. And that's the part that creates then the misalignment, the mistrust, all of the things within the organization and that lack of transparency also around how they got promoted, Mm -hmm. doing what they're doing. And someone else who's trying to do the right thing isn't getting promoted. That lack of transparency is deadly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we're talking about lack of transparency and whatnot. I mean, you know, you you spoke to it. I mean, it creates mistrust, you know, that there becomes like this haves and have nots here, right? Because you have people who are able to do their own thing and not be held accountable. I don't necessarily want to work in those organizations. And I've talked to countless employees who really don't want to be around that, right? So they would take less money. They'll take positions with less authorities just to be away from the type of toxic culture. I mean, this creates a bit of trauma, you know, in some situations, right? Because when you do everything that you're supposed to do and you can't get promoted or no one's advocating for you, the worst part of those behaviors got rewarded. That does do something to you psychologically. And that's Mm -hmm. where we come back to what you said earlier, Maureen, when we're talking about the psychological safety. That stuff is important. Let's delve into this a little bit because I think we probably have a range of listeners, some who grew up when I did, where we tolerated inappropriate behavior if someone was making money. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, as time progresses, we've got younger folks who don't have to tolerate that because we've changed from you have a good job and you just stay here forever and you put up with it because you get a pension 
to. I'm not going to go pension anyway, so <laughs> I'm going to keep jumping to the next best job. That's right. yep. It's 401k world. And if I've got the flexibility, why am I going to work for someone who mistreats me or others when I can choose my employer based on my values. So there's an economic equation I, that I think both of you started to mention about retention and engagement that says meeting the numbers looks different now than it used to. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit to that and the hardcore why of it's nice to do the right thing, but for a company, it's now also far less optional than it used to be? Yeah. If we want to break a couple of things down, there, there's so many high tech or technology organizations out there. So if we're thinking about just the sheer number of STEM kids, you know, who are out there, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. It costs a lot of money when someone leaves the organization and then you have to replace those folks. Where at the end of the day, it's easier to do the right thing and to make sure that we take care of those behaviors and that we don't have people leaving the organization and now having something bad to say about the leadership, about the culture, all of those things financially can cost you far more to be able to try to replace and retain people than actually holding a leader, you mm -hmm. know, accountable to cultivating the right type of environment. In the past, it was burn and churn, right? It was like, ah, oh, we'll just get somebody else. Ah, we'll yeah. just do this. But now you start to see those people leaving companies like Tesla mm -hmm. and now starting their own companies like Lucid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you have those right. companies leaving Apple and starting a company called Google or mm -hmm. whatever the case is. Now the cost of replacing that talent can really hamstring an organization in terms of their future credibility or even being able to acquire talent. I mean, there's a war on talent. Most talented people want to go with the most innovative organizations. They want to go with those leaders who motivate people to do extra things there. So if that's not important to you as an organization, you probably won't be too competitive when it comes to the world talent. Right. A couple of things that came to mind for me, just demographically, the world is totally different now. I mm -hmm. mean, we are on the verge of becoming a majority minority country as well as world. Right. That's very different than it was 40 or 50 years ago yeah, when absolutely. corporate America was 80 to 90 percent white and 80 to 90 percent male. We've evolved over the last 50 years headed towards a majority minority country. And so that changes in terms of just expectations of what workers want, what they're willing to put up with, how you have to lead and, and manage people. And so it forces organizations to change if they want to keep the top talent. And then secondly, I mean, with the advent of social media now, corporations had to pay a lot more attention to their public brand than mm -hmm. they had to before. It was very easy to just craft your brand with the fuzzy commercials and the nice print things in magazines. But now with social media, you mess with somebody, they're just going to put it out there on Instagram and Twitter and everything else and put you on blast. And so you're not going to be an employer of choice anymore. They'll put it on Glassdoor, all the things that are out there now that allow folks to really express what's going on under the hood. Yeah. And it costs <laughs> far more money to react to situations than it does for you to be proactive. You talk about social media and we're talking about social injustices today, all of those things. Employees want to work for an organization that is socially conscious, that's trying to do the right thing, or at least has an opinion on it. All of those factors come into the differences from when we were coming up and the things that our parents told us about how to stay at a company or mm -hmm. what to look for, all of that stuff has been kind of flipped on his axis, yeah. you know, here now. 
as a company, I want to be proactive. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just, okay, so BLM happened. I do that. Me too happened. I do that. I, you know, whatever the next thing is, I respond to that. How do I come up with a cohesive approach that is broad enough? Because no matter what I think is right, there are going to be people who think I'm wrong. And on one level, depending on how wide that aperture is, I probably don't want them to work for me anyway. If you're a Klansman, you shouldn't work for me. Mm -hmm. How do you do that proactively and also attract diverse talent? When I say diverse there, I mean not color or religion, but different points of view. Because if I think something's right and you think it's wrong, you may be the best person to work with me so that we have diverse thinking. But do I alienate you by my, we do the right thing here and it's my thing, my thing's right. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. For me, it's really focusing internally as opposed to trying to be a shiny object Mm -hmm. out in the world, right? Because I haven't met an organization or seen an organization yet where they don't have issues with their hiring practices, with their pay practices, with their promotion rates, with their representation. And so those are things that all can be handled internally. If you want to do the right thing for your people, when it comes to how do I make sure I don't hire a Klansman, but also have a diverse points of view and diverse voices, those hiring practices, really making sure that the folks that are part of the interview team have a wide range of experience and diversity and representation, that you have more than one person screening resumes. There's all types of different components to the interview. It's not just sit in front of the chair and and speak to me. There could be other ways that people can showcase their skills. Pay inequity, just pay people the same. It's not that hard to do. When you see inequities, make sure that people are getting paid right and look at your representation numbers and make it happen, right? So, I mean, it's those types of things that are hard and simple at the same time, but those will be the things that make the biggest difference in terms of you being able to attract and retain talent. And I think that, you know, to that point, when we speak about representation, having some aspirational goals, if you are an organization, you got to put some aspirational goals together. I mean, we do this all the time when we're talking about finances. We're going to make this kind of money, you know, in the next three to five years. We can do the same thing when it comes to gender representation, ethnically diverse representation, when it comes to our footprint in a specific community. We can do all of these types of things, but those are some of the proactive pieces that can happen for an organization. Some that are even more simple than that is create space, create opportunities, whether that's through affinity groups, whether that's through courageous conversations or whatever the outlet is, let employees get together and talk about what's happening out there, whether that be how we were doing it when George Floyd, when all of that stuff happened, now with Tyree Nichols. Let people get together and be able to kind of speak to those because you'll be able to start to see whether it's about violence against Asians, you know, whatever it is, you'll start to see what drives or motivates an organization. And I promise you that you'll be able to start to see a a bit of a correlation or alignment with the organization's actual values or mission statement there that all spawned from being able to have those conversations. And it's best to have a regular cadence of conversations versus just having them when something happens and it hits the news because things are happening all the time. They're just not getting caught on camera sometimes. Those are, to your point, Maureen, some ways that organizations can be proactive versus reacting to situations when they happen. It absolutely takes work and it takes being able to set some aspirational goals in terms of 
how long it's going to take you to be able to get to where you want to be, but actually holding each other accountable for meeting those aspirational goals as well. I was reading something this weekend, tangentially related, but if we have affinity groups, only LGBTQ people, and then only Black people, and then only women, now we are in the echo chamber talking to ourselves about something, when really what we need is to be talking to someone who's not us. And I think even about how folks who've been on our show have really opened my eyes to things I thought I was being enlightened about, and I was dumb as a stump on some of these topics. I was trying to do the right thing. But if I don't talk to people who look and sound and more importantly, have experienced a different life path than me, then I'm not going to get it. I'm going to be trying as hard as I can talking to my white women groups. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make me smarter about other people's issues. So can you speak to how we cross pollinate some of this? Because it's easy for all of us to make fun of white dudes, Mm -hmm. but how are we working to help integrate with them so we don't just sit around and make fun of them? Keith, I'll let you uh, answer this shortly, but one of the things that Keith and I talk about with some of our diversity trainings that we do for corporate organizations is you have to open up. First off, everyone has to be willing to learn and learning means being uncomfortable sometimes, right? And so if this is about being included in an affinity group, It's also about having some of the leaders who are in charge be the chairs or the executive sponsors for those affinity groups as well. Because as the executive sponsor, you're removing obstacles. You're helping enable that specific group to be able to hit some of the aspirational goals that they have. But you're learning along the way. And as a leader, when you learn, you also are able to teach other individuals who may need those lessons. That's the first thing that I would say is making sure that you open up whatever the learning, whatever the opportunity is, if it's speakers, if it's conversations, open it up. It's for everyone, but we're talking about issues that seem to impact that marginalized group more often than that. And I look at this as like a both and, Mm -hmm. as opposed to an either or, where affinity groups have the power of just creating some psychological safety that we talked about Mm -hmm. before, some camaraderie, some solidarity, some of that village accountability. Some of those things are just powerful that you need when you're one of the only or the few. Mm -hmm. You just need that in terms of being ready for the battle, if you will. So it, it serves that purpose for us who are part of those affinity groups. At the same time, it needs to be combined with the organizational effort to have these conversations, right? And to do these trainings. I mean, I get so irritated with a lot of the diversity training. It's all about fear mongering. It's all about making people feel guilty or shaming folks and things <laughs> like that. And Ricky and I have taken a different approach to that whole thing. It really is, is just easing people into having conversations about things that may be triggering or sensationalized out there, right? It's like, we can have a conversation about white privilege or just privilege in general or white supremacy in a way that is educational and safe and has everybody in the room without it triggering them. Doing that or being able to do that is really the art and the nuance in terms of kind of moving the conversations forward. Absolutely. In our prep conversation, we talked about the role of Black leaders and the role of white leaders. And my sense that all diversity training shouldn't be delivered by Black people. Yeah, right. It's not a, it's your issue or my issue, just like all women's stuff shouldn't be delivered by women. Can you speak to this? Because this is a little sensitive of a topic. 
you know, when we think about just the last 10, 15 years, when we're thinking about how monumental it was just to be able to see Hillary Clinton run for the office of president, when we think about Barack Obama becoming president, we think about Kamala Harris becoming vice president. The bigger piece in this whole story was being able to dream or aspire to be more than, right? So we're thinking about how important it is to be able to see what you want to be. That created just a whole slew of other dreams. And I'm not at all comparing Keith and I, you know, being Black leaders to President Obama. But it is a rare scene to be in those chief positions. So people naturally gravitate towards us and they say, wow, I've never seen this before. Mm -hmm. Or can I spend some time with you so that I can figure out what you did and maybe I can emulate some of those activities and do the same Mm -hmm. things there. So again, it becomes really important as a Black leader to recognize Mm -hmm. this responsibility, but to also give back because Mm -hmm. we cannot take this for granted. Again, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and other things that took place to enable us to be able to do the work that we do. So there is a burden to make sure, because we know we're under a microscope. Mm -hmm. We know it's going to take courage. We know we're going to get accused of, well, you only really do this to help the Black. Yeah, yeah. Or you only really do. So there are so many other things that we have to pay attention to. And that was the same thing that's happened throughout the course of history when there is someone who has a role and they are the minority. And now they get in this business and everybody's watching to see what you do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All the time. All the time. For white leaders, I mean, I know it's an uncomfortable conversation, but it's one that's necessary because it's really about that vulnerability and kind of putting yourself out there and being vulnerable. That is what will hook people at the end of the day. When we do our workshops on power and privilege, as an example, Ricky and I sitting in the C-suite, we have some power and some privilege. Don't get it twisted, right? Mm -hmm. But we recognize it. And being on code is really all about using that power and privilege then for good, for the widest cast of net that you possibly can. I mean, I have so many white male mentees that I have helped move up the ladder. So it's not about race or whatever else. It's really about being on code because I know each one of those gentlemen that I've mentored have the same mentality of, I need to grab somebody and bring them along. I need to advocate for the Black person or the woman in the room. And so that's what I care about at the end of the day. But it's kind of having a switch come on where you're actually recognizing that you have the power and the privilege to actually do something right. and do something for good. And that's really what we're trying to address when we say getting on code. Yeah. And again, there's a point in every leader's career where you start to talk about talent. <laughs> okay. Everyone's going to talk about succession plans and who's next up. And as a leader, it is your responsibility to be a talent scout a talent ambassador. And you can't do that if you're not out trying to understand who the talent is, trying to understand what their aspirations are, what do they want to be when they grow up, but also being able to kind of help them achieve any areas of opportunity they have by way of development. If you're the leader that's actually spending that type of time on being able to find and cultivate talent, you are absolutely going to be able to influence the conversations. And I would say that other leaders are going to want to know, how did you do that? How did you do that? <laughs> you know, how did you get to know that? Uh, because again, to our point earlier, 
we oftentimes focus on the what, but we're not necessarily focused on the how. That's right. You know, in the same way. So Mm -hmm. as a black leader, we oftentimes have to be focused on the how. What is this going to look like when we do it? How do we accomplish this task without alienating other people or without making someone else feel like I'm gunning for their job, yep. you know, so to speak. So, so this makes the responsibility real. Absolutely. You know, and as we were talking about earlier with everything being about the what and hitting the numbers and all mm-hmm. of those things, the how is the part that we want our white leaders in particular to just kind of understand because as you start to dismantle these systems, you're actually not giving up power. You're actually gaining more power as you empower other people. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's so liberating. I mean, we all know what it feels like when we bang our head against the wall and then finally we bust through and you're just like, this is amazing. And there's no reason why you can't have that feeling over and over and over again, especially for white leaders in terms of dismantling all of these inequities that we were talking about mm-hmm. before the hiring process and the pay and the things, the amount of joy that you will give to people and that will be expressed back to you will be immense. Right, right. But, yeah. So again, getting on code, Keith, yep. is diving into this data that we talk about. Like, don't disregard the data, right? right. You always got to leave with the data, but there's a reason why the data is the way that it is yep. sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. So fixing these systemic issues that you speak about, actually increasing the representation, you know, actually doing those things is actually getting on code. Yep. So that is actually like the joy, you mm-hmm. know, in this when you talk about liberating and empowering. As you talk about empowering and being in your power, we've done a couple of interviews recently about being in your power more from a female perspective than a person of color perspective. Mm -hmm. Especially as Black men, you carry a different burden about power than I do. At 5'3", I don't intimidate much of anyone. As men of color who are of much bigger stature than 5'3", the whole idea of power and balancing, getting to be genuinely you, and also navigating that there are some people who are afraid of Black men, period. Black men who are in positions of power in their organization can be intimidating, even if it's an unconscious thing. There's just some things that, you know, Keith and I won't ever be able to change, right? God made me the way that I am. You know, like it, it is what it is. If someone is fearful or has apprehensions about me, that's usually some stuff rooted in some other stuff, you know, there, right? The empowering piece that no matter who you are, that Keith and I pride ourselves on doing, this is part of our executive coaching platform that we do, right? We talk to people about, number one, the empowering piece is really doing the self-discovery to figure out what it is that you want to do and the impact that you want to make. Because we spend a lot of our career doing so much stuff for the organization that we don't ever really step back and say, what is it that I want to do? We're always looking up the hill, but we never really turn around and be like, wow, I've come really, really far here, right? So the first part about the empowering piece for me is really doing the self-discovery. The second part of that is after you kind of figured out what it is that you want to do or you kind of know the area, then we always talk about this till we're blue in the face is working on like your marketing collateral. That marketing collateral could be like your resume, your value graph that shows the accomplishments that you've made. Working on your LinkedIn or whatever social media, that stuff is empowering because in your mind, you can articulate what it is that you want to be. Your collateral backs that up. And if you want a two, $300,000 a year job, your collateral is executive ready. I think that's the big piece. 
I would say the third part about the empowering part of here is actually being prepared to have conversations about your career, about your accomplishments in such a way where you don't feel like you're necessarily bragging on yourself. We've been conditioned, you know, as people of color, I'm making this broad to not brag about yourself. But when we see our white counterparts, they do it all day, every day, you know? So again, we provide confidence in being able to speak about what it is that you bring to the table, the accomplishments that you've been able to do, like the strategies that you've been able to put together and how you've been able to tactically execute against those, that is empowering. And I think the last part about the whole empowerment piece is really figuring out how to find your voice, but then how to utilize it. What do you post about if you're on social media? When you're in meetings, what do you talk about? Can you be on panels? Can you be involved externally with board opportunities? All of those things is all part of like the empowerment where I can tell you when I was growing up, I didn't learn about any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I was in my late forties when it was like, hey, this is important. You know, and I'm like, wow, if I could have honed in on this stuff earlier, where would I be? So I think we've tried to flip the script a little bit as we think about what empowerment means and some of the characteristics or qualities of it, which, again, hopefully if we're able to do those things, that we don't have to be as concerned because the, the concern will never go away, but about whether or not I'm creating fear yeah. for someone else, me being black male, I think we're focused on some of the other things. But again, that's never really going to go away, but I don't want to spend as much time about that fear as I need to be spending on doing the self-discovery and some of those other things so that I can lead with the receipt in terms of my accomplishments and what I bring to the table. Brilliant. I love focusing on the receipts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think as a black male leader, I mean, it's really treating others like you want to be treated, mm -hmm. right? I know how difficult or hard or the trials and tribulations, as well as the triumphs that I've had mm -hmm. along the way. And it's really about creating those opportunities for others to also experience the joy and being able to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And so that ends up taking the fear out of the system because I'll have one-on-ones where it's like, what do you want? What do you want to do? What do you need? And my focus is then opening up the doors and removing the barriers to make that happen. So that's building the trust, the credibility, all of those things, taking the fear out of the system that at least helped me speaking from my perspective in terms of kind of getting over some of those stereotypes. There's so many uh, different receipts or facts about who's more educated than who and who's overqualified to be qualified. The biggest joy that Keith and I get the absolute biggest joy. And I know this is going to sound bad, but we really love sticking it to the man when it comes <laughs> to getting people paid. Maureen, it's so great when you see an employee, like an underrepresented, whether that's female or, you know, person of color, when they actually know what their market value is, they ask for it, get it, or they go out there and they're intentional about being able to get that. When they call us and say, hey, my salary is now X, or I can buy my first home, or I can put my kid into school, I can do these things. At the end of the day, that's the confidence that we're building when it comes to being able to get your market value or to be able to influence like that generational wealth. And this is some of the things that we just did not know when we were growing up. This is why we do what we do. And this is really, really the big part of being able to get on code is making sure that everyone understands what their market value is and everyone understands exactly what you need to do to be able to get to the next level in your career, but more importantly, to be able to create that stability for your family. This sounds like the 
piece, you talk about village accountability. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit more about what is village accountability? Because I like the tie to, this isn't just about me and my ego, I got a salary. This is taking care of buying my first home, mm -hmm. making sure my kids see that, making sure that when I go to a school to tutor young kids, that they see a black man who has some visible symbols of the things they say that's success. Yeah, no, it's really, really important. This whole village accountability piece is really about being selfless and each of us taking care of one another and holding each other accountable to do the right things. I mean, Ricky and I both can tell you, I mean, how many times we had to jack up a niece or a nephew when they're going off the rails? Yeah, right? it's like, yeah. look, you are representing all of us. And that's something that's drilled into our head as Black people, for sure, that each one of us represents all of us. So when yeah. one of us messes up, it reflects back on all of us. And that's not fair, but that's just part of the burden that we carry. So it is so important that as a village, we are holding each other accountable. We're being examples for each other. We're giving back. We're advocating for change. We're doing all of those things to make it better for the entire village and especially for the ones that are coming behind us. Yeah. And I think that if we even flip that, you know, just a little bit is we've all been in situations where either the wrong person gets credit for something that they didn't do, or they get blamed for that's, something that they didn't do. And we're looking for allies to be able to say, hey, 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 that's not right. Or, you know, you see something, step up, you know, and say it. That is like the village accountability because everyone that's in the village doesn't look like me. You know, everyone that's in the village is not a man. Everybody that's in the village is not black. Our village just keeps getting larger and larger. And in order for you to stay in the village, you got to handle your business. And handling your business is when no one is looking, are you still doing the right thing? When you're in that meeting and you have an opportunity to talk about an extraordinary talent or you have an opportunity to say, hey, it's not right for us to lay all of these people off on a Friday before the holiday. You have some compassion. Like that's the accountability that we're talking about because ultimately you have to look yourself in the mirror and you have to be able to say, when it's all said and done, I did all I could to move the needle. I did all I could to make this world be a better place than what it is today. Because again, I know we have jokes that we tell yep. a lot of times, but it is true. All skin folk ain't kin folk. We want to make sure everyone knows what their responsibility is within this village. That's the accountability that we're talking about. Absolutely. In finance or even in HR, this pay and equity thing is one of my triggers. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it's so hard at the end of the right. day. It's like, as a CFO, I see what everybody gets paid. The HR person knows what everybody gets paid. We get all the data in terms of what the market is paying, what the medians are, all the things. And it's just like, fix it. <laughs> I mean, I literally, every organization I've been in since I've been in a CFO role, that's one of the first things I look at. And I look to see where the discrepancies are. And then I go to back. I'll go to Ricky's office and say, hey, this is what I saw, Ricky. Yeah. At least true. explain it to me why it's different. Or Mr. CEO, we need to change this. Right. Right. We're just going to have to take a budget hit or whatever the case may be. But we just got to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This isn't that hard. Absolutely. Which is interesting because usually the CFO is the one saying we can't take a budget hit. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's the mindset, right? And that's why I'm not the typical CFO because <laughs> I look at it as being, we're going to get more out of those folks once we get their pay right. Mm -hmm. We're going to get more out of them. We're going to get better results. I guarantee you we'll most likely exceed our goals at the end of the day for the temporary hit that we'll take. Absolutely. 
when most people know what their counterparts make. Yep. Even if we say don't talk about it, they, some everybody away. talks about it. Some kind of way. And that's what pisses people off. <laughs> Anyone who goes to a bar on Friday night with their colleagues pissed off talks about salary. Yeah. But, you know, like now it's, it's becoming to have the, the pay transparency in terms of the job description. If you don't want people talking about it, just pay everybody what they're supposed to make. That's right. <laughs> we don't have any issues. It's like I can't give you three jelly bellies and then um, right. I'm giving somebody else five over here. You're going right. to be like, well, why didn't I get enough? I just need to see how you eat those. Right. Okay. <laughs> and if you eat them slow, you can earn two more. But by the time I give you your five, now the other person got That's seven not- or eight. It's like it just perpetuates and keeps getting worse. We just got to stop. So let me ask as we wrap up, All of this AI stuff now, everybody's making a big deal, chat GPT and the AI ecosystem. What is the opportunity that that ecosystem presents us to improve helping people stay on code? Is there an enabler here? That's a great question. Are we going to be the first ones to answer? I love it. On one of our episodes, a leading AI person, Dr. Sophia Nobles, talked a little bit about some of the algorithms and how they're created and the bias really in those algorithms. And I think that's probably the scariest part as well as the enabling part about this AI is because most of that AI is written by males, mostly written by majority males. And so the answers and the responses that you get back are from that perspective, right? So in one way, it continues to perpetuate some of the inequities and oppression and things that are in the system. So really, I think the opportunity and what would be enabling is, again, this is around getting those coders and the computer engineers and all those folks. It just has to be a much more diverse and broader set of people who are doing all of that code. And once you get there, then the responses that you're getting back are going to be very different, which would be the teaching and enabling part of how AI could be powerful. Yeah. You know, and and to that point, I think that like the AI, the influence that it will have is, again, as you're talking about the diversity of the people writing the algorithms, Mm -hmm. the diversity of the responses that Mm -hmm. come out of those, I think that there's nothing worse than putting in, you know, whether it's something you're looking for in Google or wherever it is, and it's not coming back for you. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I think we'll be able to get tighter with that. And again, if that's really our intent, that's how the AI will be influenced. We're writing a book coming up and basically taking some of our prior work, adding additional research, but boiling it down to create a much simpler book. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I was excited came back in that content was very explicit focus on DE&I. So whatever question I asked and whatever research I pointed it to captured accurately, it didn't give me some crazy thing about (laughs) DE&I, how crucial that is in leadership. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting, though, where you point it to absolutely drives the content. So if I pointed it to somebody else's body of work, diversity may not have come back at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's the tweaking that needs to be done. Yep, absolutely. And the opportunity, I think, for all of us is if we ask the right questions. So if I want perspectives that include diverse voices, I have to tell the machine I want diverse voices. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They don't necessarily come back on their own. 
the machine doesn't know. Hopefully we won't have to continue to do that. That's right. Because <laughs> it should be a conglomeration of all of those voices to come back with, you know, a coherent answer. And really the answer shouldn't be like one answer. It should be like, here's the way to think about this yes. from different points of view. Because mm-hmm. that's really where you'll get help with the growth mindset and the critical thinking and things like that. It's not an answer. It's really get you to think and ask further questions. Yeah. There is the code that needs to be cracked (laughs) right there. Tell our listeners about Secrets. Yeah. So we have a podcast called Secrets. We started that podcast really with the idea of, given the fact that there are so few people of color in executive leadership roles in corporate America and other organizations, and we've been fortunate enough to get there, we thought it was really imperative that we give back and give that information back so that people don't have the same struggles and have to go through the same hurdles that we went through as we were climbing the career ladder. So our podcast is all about providing tips and tricks on how to climb the ladder, as well as putting provocative thoughts out there for organizations and leaders to think about in terms of helping to dismantle some of the oppressive systems that are out there that are holding people back. Yeah. And I think another part of us thinking about the podcast, really just trying to figure out how we can mentor than we can in our regular day-to-day work environment. So this gives us an opportunity to reach out and scale our information and to make sure that, again, when we talk about being able to get what your market value is or to be able to influence generational wealth, that's, it's like these secrets. It's stuff that you just don't know about, like you hear about it, but you don't quite know how to do it. And we talk to people on a weekly basis on how to actually advocate for yourself and to be able to influence your market value and your generational wealth. I mean, I think these are things that, you know, we would all agree, man, if I knew then what I know now, I'd be dangerous, you know? So we're really trying to give people those secrets, you know, on how to be able to advocate for themselves today. So that's part and parcel why Keith and I do what we do. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a labor of love for us. Well, and being on code means doing things at a scale that you can't do meeting with folks one-on-one. Absolutely. The invitation for your listeners that they can get brilliant mentoring, even if they never talk to you. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was the reason for us starting the podcast, because we wanted to be able to do it at scale, because it's impossible for us to set up 25, 15-minute meetings every day to really do the work that's necessary. So why not? put it out there to the universe as a podcast. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we think about those 10 to 15 people that you're maybe speaking to during the course of a week to be able to help them out. Now we're talking about what are we at over a hundred podcast episodes, you know, now and close to 50,000 downloads. I mean, I think that's when we talk about being able to reach people at scale, I think we've been able to accomplish that. There's more to come, but I think that's really when we start speaking about being on code, we want to make sure that everyone hears the message having the opportunity and the honor to participate more than once with you on our podcast and me on yours, we get better as we go. Yes, <laughs> you, know, you were compelling to start and you're really compelling now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. This has, as always, been incredibly insightful. So we're talking about getting on code. Mm-hmm. This is Ricky Robinson and Keith Powell. How would people learn about Secrets and learn about your other work? Go to our uh, website, secrets.com, and you can connect with us there. You can also connect with us on our LinkedIn profiles. We're really, really active there and connect with us on Instagram and Facebook. We're out there. We're doing a lot of work, you know, there. So again, if, if there are topics that you'd like to hear, 
or events that you'd like us to be a part of, by all means, you know, Keith and I are always ready and, and happy, you know, to show up <laughs> and to show out. Thank you both so much. And thanks to our listeners. We appreciate that you are investing your time in learning about crucial topics in leadership. If you have questions about our show or just want to be in touch, our email address is inquiries at innovative leadership. I'm Maureen Metcalf, your host, and I can be found under Maureen Metcalf at LinkedIn.